Retirement Tips Radio is brought to you by Business Radio X, the voice of business in your community. Currently serving over 25 markets, the Business Radio X network is growing fast. We're teaming up with retired execs and established entrepreneurs to support and celebrate local business leaders. If you'd like to make additional income while making a difference, discover more at brxteam.com. Now, here's your host. Lee Cantor here, another episode of Retirement Tips Radio, and this is going to be a good one. Today we have with us Russ Camp with Ryan ALM. Welcome, Russ. Thanks, uh, Lee. I really appreciate being here. I'm very much looking forward to the next uh, couple minutes. All right. Well, uh, before we get too far into things, tell us about Ryan ALM. How are you serving, folks? Uh, sure. We're a fixed income manager uh, located primarily out of Florida working with uh, institutions, primarily defined benefit plans, to help preserve the promised benefits uh, that uh, workers are looking forward to upon completion of their careers. So now, uh, I guess you're in the belly of the beast in Florida, uh, the one of the retirement capitals in this country. Um, what is the, kind of the current state of retirement now in the United States? Well, for many Americans, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, Decades ago, most people who worked in this country uh, enjoyed the benefits of a defined benefit plan. You know, they had an employer who sponsored a plan. They either contributed to it or the employer did all the contributing. But at the end of their career, they very much looked forward to receiving a monthly check for as long as they lived. So we've gone from about 50% of the private sector being covered by a defined benefit plan in 1986 to where today we have um, just about 14% of our private sector covered, and only about a third of those are actually in live plans. So for the remainder of us, it's um, either fund through an IRA or an employer-sponsored 401k plan, but that comes with a lot of, of hazards. You know, there are a lot of American workers who are fully employed that just don't have the discretionary income to fund a retirement plan. If they're fortunate to do so, they then have to manage this plan on their own, whereas a defined benefit plan used to have professional management. A defined contribution plan is basically you're left to your own devices. And then the math problem gets even more difficult and challenging because upon completion of our career, when we receive this account balance, we now have to estimate how long we're going to live and how to disperse it over that period of time. So it's really challenging. And I, I think it's unfortunate. I really do believe that we are a more stable economy and a stable country with a defined benefit framework, but that's not where we are today. So um, you mentioned that kind of the population is divided, I guess, amongst the people that have worked for private companies, and then there's people who work for in some sort of a government job. What's the ratio of people who have um, you know, been in private sector and have to kind of, they're kind of on their own at this point, I'm hearing you say, as opposed to the people who worked in government in some form where there still is some sort of a, a more, I guess, stable pension situation for them? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so right now, as I mentioned, about 14% of the private sector has a defined benefit plan. Um, about 85% of the public sector uh, has the benefit of being in a defined benefit plan. Um, in many cases, the employees are contributing to their plan. Um, 
and in, and those contribution rates anywhere from say six to ten percent. So it's um, you know it's a benefit to work for a public entity at this point in time. Although we may get into this, a lot of those public funds are struggling to adequately fund those promised benefits. So that's the challenge for the individual worker, right? When they, especially if they're starting their career, should they take uh, like a government type job where you have this in place? as opposed to a private sector job where it's kind of you're on your own and you're kind of have to, this is now kind of in your plate of how to manage your retirement and, and how to manage, um, you know, some sort of a, a monthly once you stop working. Well, that's so truly, it is a difficult uh, decision. Um, you know, it used to be that uh, folks uh, with government jobs maybe uh, made a little bit less money than the private sector. Uh, but they did receive the benefits of post health care uh, as well as uh, you know a, a sound retirement system. I'm not sure that the private sector has actually kept pace with the government sector in terms of annual increases. I mean, it's rare these days that the private sector is enjoying you know annual three percent increases. So it may actually not be as difficult a decision as it once was. Uh, I believe that uh, folks who have public uh, jobs are probably uh, receiving compensation that's certainly competitive, if not better, than the private sector. Plus, they then get the promise of a defined benefit plan and, in many cases, post-health care. So um, it, it may actually be a time for people to, to step up in the private sector because the competition is going to get a little bit more challenging for quality workers. Now, in your work, you work primarily with private sector companies to help them with their plans? Like what is your company's kind of day-to-day? What, who are you serving exactly? The individual right. or the companies? Well, we are primarily servicing the companies <clears throat> as well as the government agencies with the hope that if we can preserve the defined benefit system, that the individuals who benefit from that uh, will have the financial resources in retirement that they need. Um, the leverage that we can bring to one entity, such as you know an IBM pension system, versus trying to work with every single one of the IBM individual participants, is far greater. And so we would prefer <clears throat> to work with institutions, uh, but a lot of what we discuss with them can actually be transferred to those folks who are now responsible for their retirements, whether they be nearing retirement or having just uh, started to participate in a retirement. Now, is the trend that these large institutions are kind of offloading this responsibility onto the individual worker, and there's less and less of those plans that even exist? That is correctly. And we saw that trend start in the early 80s. Um, you know, it wasn't until I believe it was Johnson & Johnson in 1978 that got uh, the Department of Labor agreeing uh, with the concept of a 401k plan. Uh, the whole basis for wanting to establish a 401k was because they were having difficulty uh, actually bringing in middle management talent who might have been in their late 30s, early 40s, and wouldn't have enough years left to appropriately build a retirement nest egg through a defined benefit plan. And that's why it was supplemental. It was going to be, um, let's, let's have these individuals place some additional resources into a 401k-like plan so that that in conjunction with a traditional defined benefit plan and Social Security would be sufficient enough to have a quality retirement. Unfortunately, um, 
401k plans really caught on. It caught on not only from the sponsor of defined benefit plans who no longer wanted to have the impact of uh, contribution volatility on their uh, in- income statements, but employees also thought that they would prefer to have the freedom to move from one entity to the next. You know, these things became portable, whereas defined benefit plan liabilities were not. And so unfortunately, we got what we asked for. You know, many people liked the idea of a 401k, but what we have found is that roughly 50% of all withdrawals from 401ks are premature. That actual movement from one employer to another often results in these small balances being cashed out so that the individual investor loses the opportunity to compound these um, asset bases over long periods of time. Uh, And plus, you're asking individuals who are not trained. You know, if I had to have something done on my house, uh, my wife would be the first person to say, there's no way that you're going to touch the electric, the plumbing, the carpentry work, masonry, anything, because I don't have that talent. I don't have the experience. I'm not certified to do that. Why do we think that all of these individuals, you know, 99.9% of us who have never been trained to be portfolio managers, why do we think all of a sudden they're going to have the skills to be able to do a job that I've seen many investment professionals have a difficult uh, time handling. So it's just a a silly concept that defined contribution plans ever moved from being a supplemental form of retirement to somebody's full-time retirement vehicle. So is this just kind of a United States thing? Because, you know, in the United States, there's a portion of the population that is freedom first. This give me control. Um, I want to be kind of um, responsible and accountable for me. Uh, So then therefore, I don't need some entity to tell me what's best for me. I can make these own kind of judgments myself. And then kind of the pendulum, you know, the other side of the coin for that is, well, there's like you said, a lot of people that don't know how to do it, or they're not skilled at doing it, or they think they do, but they're wrong. And then the ramifications of that are that, you know, what they thought they had is gone or, or disappearing much faster than it should in the hands of somebody more knowledgeable. So how do we kind of balance that? You know, because there is, you can't deny that that's part of America is freedom and the freedom to screw up, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, no question about it. And, and I'm all for defined contribution plans, because I think that individuals should be able to sock away more of of the hard money that they're earning. But I do believe that the primary retirement vehicle for a majority of Americans should be a defined benefit plan. So perhaps what we see as this country would be a lower defined benefit that guarantees maybe 35 or 40 percent of one's compensation to be received on a monthly basis. So there's at least this annuity throughout the life of the participant. And then we have a supplemental form of income for anybody who can put some additional money aside. Now, the problem is, again, the issue of portability. You know, we don't have the same employee and and employer relationship that we once did. My dad worked for the same company for 44 years. That you just don't see that anymore. There isn't the same loyalty among either the employee or the employer. We've gone to a more on-call workforce, and that's resulted in having fewer benefits for a lot of the employees. Uh, what we need to probably establish, and I know that there are efforts underway in several states, is to have 
a defined benefit plan that's created for individual workers outside of the specific entity for whom they're working and to have it funded by your employer into this plan but that becomes portable. If you go to another employer, they make contributions on your behalf. Maybe you make contributions as well into the state-sponsored or federal-sponsored plan so that at the end of your career, you actually have a defined benefit benefit that may, again, represent 35 or 40% of your final average salary. Um, you can still have a 401k plan. Um, there are issues with 401k plans that need to be resolved, but... Um, I do believe that we can create a system where that people who have worked for 30 or 40 years don't end up with nothing uh, on the last day of their employment. And we're finding that more and more. I mean, there are studies from the National Institute on Retirement Security, uh, from the Center of uh, Retirement Research at a Boston College, and a number of others, uh, pension uh, you know, uh, organizations that just show just how fragile our retirement system is right now. Certainly those that have the means, the financial means are doing fine, but that seems to be becoming a uh, smaller and smaller percentage of our working population. Now, I recently saw a proposal, I, I think it was an economist, but it might've been a financial person that said that if the government gave $6,500 to every newborn and put it in some sort of an index type fund uh, or some st- you know, stock market-based uh, fund that would take advantage of that compounding, that by the time they were 65, there would be like over a million dollars uh, based on historical. Uh, is something yeah. is something yeah. like that um, kind of a way to skin the cat? Because uh, I think at some point that you're going to have to disengage. You can't connect the employer with the person uh, because it, the, we're trending into a world that has uh, it's kind of free agent nation where every person is just kind of cobbling together a livelihood. And that could be through multiple kind of revenue streams. And it's less like you said, where these big where people work for many years in a big entity in today's world, people are job jumping, you know, sometimes every six months uh, right. for another I opportunity. I agree with you. I think that and that's why I mentioned earlier that if we can get all the states in this country to establish a, you know, a, a state-sponsored defined benefit plan so that if you are fully employed uh, within that state, no matter who you're working for, a contribution is made to that plan on your behalf. And again, it doesn't have to be rich. Uh, we're trying to make sure that there is a base level of retirement benefits that have been achieved. Uh, and then you have the opportunity through uh, supplemental income. Um, you know, if we're going to just rely solely on an, an individual's ability to fund, manage, and disperse a retirement benefit, we're going to have a real crisis. It's just not going to happen. We have too few Americans who have the disposable income in this environment to adequately fund their retirement. I mean, it's just, you know, it was recognized years ago when those that are age 50 can have what's called a catch-up contribution each year. So if if the average American below 50 can contribute 19,000 into a 401k plan, those 50 and older who are employed can contribute an additional 6,000. Well, that's great. But the average American is not making $100,000 a year. And even if they were to put 25,000 of that into a 401k is going to be very challenging. Um, But in fact, only about 
13%, according to Vanguard, ever make the full catch-up contribution. I mean, that just shows, um, well, it shows several things, that we have a lot of lowly compensated American workers, and we have very few people who are in a position, for whatever reason, to max out on their contributions. So I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I kind of like the concept of having an individual account created at birth and allow that uh, compounding. You mentioned, however, a million-dollar portfolio, and, and I just want to comment on that briefly if I can. It used to be that a million dollars was considered you know, kind of a golden target, that you could generate $50,000 a year through both dividends and interest income rather easily and not have to eat too much into your corpus. Unfortunately, given the historic low level of interest rates today, you probably need somewhere between three and five million to just get to that 50,000, unless you're willing to go into much riskier investments. And by that, I mean, you know, we're seeing a tremendous push into senior secured debt. We're seeing the use of high yield to a greater extent, bank loans and all these different instruments that for the average retiree is scary. You know, they're being forced because of Federal Reserve policy to pursue riskier investment strategies. So right now we're in an investing environment where rates are historically low. Most of the debt that's being financed uh, to support corporate America is coming out as a triple B, uh, you know, rating, uh, greater use of high yield and other forms of debt as the financial institutions are no longer lending. So you see a lot of private debt coming to the marketplace and it's enticing these um, individuals to chase after those potential returns and interest rates. Well, what we've seen in corrections is that those are less liquid than obviously treasuries and high quality uh, corporates. And so it could actually backfire on these individuals. And that's what I'm really frightened about. You know, we're setting these people up for greater risk. If you've already retired, you really have no means to make it up. Uh, so it's, it, it's not a great situation right now. And I don't mean to be so so negative. I'm trying not to be, but it's a challenging environment, and we need to we need to kind of roll up our sleeves right now and come up with uh, answers that will help the average American. Now, how does your firm help these enterprise companies um, kind of make their pension funds more sustainable? Well, that's a great question, and thank you for asking that. Um, the most important thing to remember is that when defined benefit plans first came out, they were managed like insurance companies and lottery systems. Um, it, it is rare that you hear of a problem with either of those two entities. And the reason for that is they know what the future liability looks like. And instead of playing games, trying to cobble together an asset allocation that might be able to achieve a certain rate of return, they basically immunize and defease that long-term liability by funding today in present value dollars, what that future value promise looks like. And they just do that over and over again, not willing to subject their assets to the whims of the market. Well, pension systems were like that also. They were heavily skewed towards fixed income. They were heavily focused on the liabilities. And it wasn't really until the early 80s that that whole uh, uh, situation changed, where all of a sudden, the 7.5% return on asset objective became the uh, focus. And what it did is it really reduced the burden on individual cities and states or corporations to fund those promised benefits. <clears throat> and 
Um, I, I think it's wrong. I, I think it's absolutely wrong that that uh, change in focus occurred because it's created a much more volatile pattern of performance. It's created a lot more uncertainty with regard to you know fu- meeting future promises. <clears throat> and it's set up a lot of these, I think, corporations to want to get out of defined benefit plans because they just couldn't stand the volatility on their income statements and balance sheets. So that change in focus has really come back to, I think, haunt the retirement systems. So what we're trying to do, Lee, is get back to the basics and basically say to corporate America or public funds or multi-employer plans, which are the union plans, if you have fixed income in your portfolio today, don't try to play the interest rate game. Don't try to uh, make it a performance uh, portfolio. Just take those assets, secure the promised benefits as far out as you possibly can go from the next payment is you know out to 10 years or more and get away from all of the volatility associated with it. And that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to counsel plan sponsors to get back to the basics to de-risk these systems where possible. And in many cases, the funding of these things are so poor that they really can only secure the next four, five, six years. But at least that's a start. You're buying enough time to allow uh, your portfolio to wade through challenging environments like we witnessed earlier this year. So now what is the pain that those uh, plan sponsors are having? Because I would think that as, as kind of the plan sponsor for a given organization, they feel okay, at least, with what they're doing because they're the ones doing it. What is kind of keeping them up at night where maybe it's good to have a conversation with Ryan ALM? Well, I think that the biggest challenge right now, Lee, is the fact that COVID-19 has negatively impacted uh, most industries, most states and municipalities. It's impacted both the revenue side and the expense side. And so what's keeping people up at night is that they know they need to contribute more to these plans. But if you have a business that is fragile, if you have a state like New Jersey that just had to borrow $9.9 billion from the federal government, if you have a city like Chicago that's struggling to fund their pension systems, you can't tax your way out of this. You have a social safety net that needs to be supported as well, you know, particularly with all the folks that are unemployed now. That pool of resources has grown tremendously, or at least the need for it. And so what I would think is is keeping people up at night is the knowledge that they have to do more, but can't. They just don't have the financial wherewithal to do that right now. And so what we're suggesting to people is that they utilize the same strategy that was included in the Butch Lewis Act, which was legislation that passed the House last July. Um, It unfortunately continues to sit in the Senate with no action being taken. But it called for low interest loans in the case of multi-employer plans from the federal government. In the case of public pension systems, it could be a pension obligation bond where you take a significant chunk of money, put it into your plan at a low rate. And in this historically low interest rate environment, I think it's fiduciarily prudent to do so. But you secure the promised benefits. You don't subject those new assets to the whims of the market. You don't put it into a traditional asset allocation. You defease all the liabilities you can. So now you've bought time for the current assets in those plans and any future contributions to be managed a little bit more aggressively to possibly outperform where you would have been had you had more of a balanced uh, asset allocation. 
So we're counseling them on a number of different ways to do that. But for public entities right now, I would say those that are significantly underfunded, you're not going to earn your way to success and you're not going to contribute through normal budget activity. You need to do something that's a little bit more extreme. And I think a pension obligation bond that uh, is injected into these plans that buys time uh, because of negative cash flow, it buys time for them to actually preserve the fund and, and begin to grow it again uh, is the only way to go. And you have a historically low interest rate environment to be able to afford you the opportunity to do that. So how many pension plans do you estimate are fragile? <laughs> um, within the multi-employer space, we know that there are roughly 130 of the 1,300 or so that are designated as critical and declining. There are another probably 250 to 300 that are in critical status. And what that means is that they are funded at less than 65% and the critical and declining category have less than 15 years of solvency left. That's how fragile multi-employers are. Corporate America has seen their uh, funded ratios uh, fall. They've snapped back a little bit because of the, the rally in the equity markets. Um, but they still, on average, are only about 82, 83% funded. And then public pension systems uh, are funded more poorly than they report. And the reason I say that is because they operate under a GASB accounting methodology, which allows them to value liabilities uh, at the return on asset assumption, as opposed to a true market rate that would they would be able to defease that liability at. So for public entities at this point in time, their uh, funded status is probably on average less than 50%. And you have those that are critical. I mean, there are some states like Connecticut, New Jersey, unfortunately, Illinois, Kentucky, who have plans that are closer to 20% funded. Now, um, do you have any advice for an individual that wanted to kind of emulate some of the strategies that you're currently using for these institutional portfolios that they can use as individuals? Or is this something that only kind of the big boys can play because of their resources? No, I think, you know, I think as an individual investor and, you know, I'm personally 61 years old. And so I, I do this myself is that um, employment these days is fragile. We never know when the plug is going to be pulled. What we do know, however, is that when it is only one in 10 people ever make the same amount of money they made on their previous job. We also know that for the average 55 and older it takes more than 18 months. In fact, 71% of those that lost their job during the Great Recession, it took more than 18 months for them to find another job. So since we don't know what's going to happen, I would uh, wholeheartedly recommend that everybody have the next two to three years worth of expenses set aside in some type of reserve. You know, for most people, the only time they save is through a an employer-sponsored plan. So in your 401k, have at least two years of expenses sitting either in high-quality treasury bonds or in cash. And in this low interest rate environment, that's difficult. But again, the last thing you want is to be forced to liquidate equities in a challenging environment where you are exacerbate, exacerbating the return downward. You want to be able to have that cash handy. God forbid you lose your job and it takes a while for you to bridge that employment gap. So that's the same thing that we're doing with institutions. We want to have the next 10 years worth of benefit payments actually locked in 
and we also do expenses too, have that absolutely locked in so that the remainder of their portfolio can grow unencumbered, doesn't have to be a source of liquidity during challenging market environments. Uh, and uh, it's the same thing for an individual. Uh, the uncertainty out there is great. Uh, you know, we've seen more than 50 million people at one point or another over the last six months lose their job. Thank goodness many of them have been called back. But every day we're seeing more and more announcements, uh, you know, particularly out of hard hit industries like the airlines. You know, we've seen Continental announce 16,000 furloughs. Uh, American Airlines uh, announced 19,000. Delta's announced. I mean, those jobs may not come back for quite some time. So those poor people are going to have to either rely on what they've saved right now uh, or they're going to have to take on more debt either by, you know, remortgaging their homes, or unfortunately, they may have to prematurely hit Social Security at, at the earliest age, 62, or do all of those things. So by consciously setting aside some money, um, you know, hopefully we can at least buy them time so that they can wade through the challenging period that they're facing. Well, Russ, thank you so much for sharing your story today. If somebody wanted to, if, if there's an enterprise level firm out there or uh, or somebody who's struggling with this, is there a website for Ryan ALM? There is. It's very straightforward. It's RyanALM.com. The other thing I'd mention is I've written maybe 830 articles now on my own blog, which is Camp Consulting blog about pension related issues and the social and economic impact of our failure failure to provide a decent retirement. So either one of those, I think would be a good source of information. And that's camp with a K, right? That is, that's camp with a K. Well, thank you again for sharing your story. You're doing important work and we appreciate you. Well, Lee, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. It's been a real pleasure. All right. This is Lee Cantor. We will see you all next time on Retirement Tips Radio. Retirement Tips Radio is brought to you by Business Radio X, the voice of business in your community. Currently serving over 25 markets, the Business Radio X network is growing fast. We're teaming up with retired execs and established entrepreneurs to support and celebrate local business leaders. If you'd like to make additional income while making a difference, discover more at brxteam.com. Dot com.